Father, we want to thank you that we are here together tonight. You know, just to be alive in Jesus Christ is a, such a great honor and privilege. And to be in a chapter that I consider, like all of the Bible, but I think especially here, holy ground. Um, I just pray, Lord, that I'll be out of your way tonight. Because tonight is just a special um, prophetic scene in the Bible of the gospel. And uh, it's so clear and so wonderful and so majestic that I'm not even sure that words, English words can do justice to it. But I do pray that you administer to our hearts tonight because tonight we're going to watch a man go through such a major test that it's beyond what we could even fathom. And we're going to watch him pass the test. And Lord, we know that this life is full of these kinds of tests and often as hard as it is to maybe even fathom, many of those tests come from you. And you have good purposes for those tests, but when we're in the midst of them, it doesn't, <laughs> it rarely makes sense to us. But we just want to pray tonight that you would speak to us, that our ears would be tuned into your voice, and that our hearts would be ready to worship you and to obey you. Because that's really what you want from us. And we know that when we obey you, you lead us to places that we couldn't even fathom. So we just pray tonight that you'd move now through your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 22 is the text. Abraham's test, God's reality. Genesis chapter 22. So we're continuing to move through the book of Genesis. And here we are going to come to what is a familiar passage to many of you, but it's a passage that is so incredible. Your faith is going to be tested. Your faith is going to be on trial. Your faith will go through fires. That's one thing that you can take to the bank. I don't like tests personally. I've told you in previous messages, when people pray for patients, I release my hand from them. <laughs> we actually used to have, uh, I used to minister with a youth pastor, and I was one of the youth sponsors way back in the day at a church in Orange, and when his wife felt like things were too calm in her life, she would actually pray for storms. And I was like, what in the world are you thinking, girl? Do not, <laughs> don't pray for storms. Enough of them come as it is. But she felt that she needed storms when things were getting too comfortable in her life. And we've been watching Abraham on this faith journey, and for the most part, we'd have to say that he's been a pretty much a giant of the faith. He has passed a lot of tests. I mean, after all, God asked him to go to a land that he would show him. Would you do that? No directions. Just trust me. Go to a land that I will show you. And then Abraham was told that he was going to have a child of promise from his own body. And he had to wait, and he had to wait, and he had to wait. And then he tried to rush things along, and then God said, no, the child is not just going to be from your body, it's going to be from your wife's body as well. And she was well beyond childbearing age, and yet he continued to trust God by faith. He had his blunders. He sometimes got in God's way. Sometimes he lied, as we saw, to the king of Egypt and the king, uh, king Abimelech. And yet God continued to move into his life and move in mighty ways. And in the last chapter we saw, finally the promise is realized. And the birth of the son of promise comes and his name is Isaac. And his name means, you remember? Laughter. 
And so joy and laughter filled the hearts of uh, Abraham and filled the heart of Sarah. And I'm sure the camp was laughing. And I even mentioned to you that I think heaven was smiling. Maybe even laughter filled the halls of heaven. God does laugh. And God delights in bringing his promises to pass, but he does it in his way and in his time. The son of promise has come, and in the last chapter, we saw that there was a weaning party, if I can put it that way. Little Isaac is about three years old. Abraham throws a big party, and Ishmael, who's a teenager at this point, is seen by Sarah mocking the little guy. You remember that? And so Sarah gets upset and says, send the bondwoman away. And that indeed is what happened. But Abraham's brokenhearted over that. But as Ishmael goes off, Ishmael represents the flesh, and Isaac represents the spirit. We can do things in our flesh. We can try to rush the plan of God. We can try to manipulate things. Some of us are really good at that. Or we can wait on God. So Abraham had to wait. He had to wait decades for this promise to come to pass. And then Ishmael went away and Hagar went away and Isaac was there. And I'm sure there were a lot of good days. I'm sure there was a lot of blessed times as Abraham got to watch this miracle in his home. Every time he called him, Isaac, he would say, laughter, come here. Every time he told him a story or shared something about God, there was a reminder that God is a God who brings joy to our lives. But now something happens. Some time has gone by, and now God does this incredible thing in Abraham's life. Pick up the story with me. Genesis 22, verse 1. Abraham's test, God's reality. Now it came about after these things, the things I just described in Genesis 21, that God tested Abraham. Now, some of you just need to mark that in your Bible, just in case you wondered if the Bible really taught that God tests people, there it is. God tested Abraham. Now, when we see something like that in our Bibles, we have to ask some questions like, what is the purpose of a test? In the Greek language, when you look at the word tempt and test, it's actually the same Greek word. It's parazo in Greek. And it depends on where the test is coming from that determines the purpose of the test. So when translators see parazo in the Greek New Testament and it's coming from the devil, it's a temptation. The devil tempted Jesus. Same Greek word. But when the word is used in the context of God doing it, then God's purposes are good. When the devil tempts you, he wants to do something bad. When God tests you, his intentions are good. What do you think his intentions might be if he tested you? One intention would be for you to grow. As I mentioned on Sunday, we don't grow the most in calm waters. We grow the most in what? Storm waters. And I said to you Sunday, being very honest and transparent, I don't like storms. I don't pray for them but I do tend to grow in them. And it wasn't until the fourth watch of the night that Jesus came, remember, walking on the sea. Now, they were never out of his sight. He was praying up on the mountain. He saw them straining at the oars, but he waited six to eight hours until he came to them. And what was he showing them? That in your own strength, you're not going to accomplish, you're not going to get to the intended destination in your own strength. You're only going to do it by the strength that I provide. And I'm going to come to you when you're poured out, when you're done, when you're empty, when it doesn't make sense. And then I'm going to come to you and show you my power is perfected in weakness. 
another thing that is so anti our humanity. We want to do it ourselves. We want to be able to look back and say, I did that. Kudos to me. But God doesn't work that way. God does want us to bend to his will, but God wants to make sure that we know he's the one doing it. So the Hebrew word here is nasa. It's transliterated for test, N-A-C-A-H. And God's intentions are good when he tests us. But sometimes when we think of a test, we're thinking of personal growth, and that's true. Tests are often for personal growth, but they're not just for personal growth. In fact, Abraham's test in Genesis 22 is much deeper than that. Abraham's test is for the purpose to show what is coming. This particular test is to show the way of salvation. In fact, when Abraham goes through the test, what he's really going to discover is how he himself is saved or will be saved, if you want to put it that way. His test was for future generations to come to know the glory of God. His test was for people to see that even when God asks you something that makes absolutely no sense, if you will walk by faith and not by sight, maybe you'll see things that you never imagined you would see. In fact, in John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus said, and he was glad. What did Abraham see? How did Abraham see Jesus' day? We're going to find out. And I believe that what Abraham saw was a picture of the gospel, a picture of what God would do. You see, it was just a test for Abraham, but for God, it was a reality. And we'll see that as the text, text goes on. Sometimes when we go through tests, they're not even just for us. They're for others around us. Maybe they're even for future generations. And he said to him, as God tests him, verse 1, he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. I'd like to say in my own life that anytime I sense God's voice, that's how I respond. I don't know about you. <laughs> I don't know if you ever when you hear God pressing on you, if you ever say, God, I'm not available at the moment. God, could you leave me a voicemail? God, could you call me later? No, when Abraham is called by God, he says, here I am. Do you say that? If God was to break into your schedule, if God was to say, take a moment for that person right now, do you say, here I am? Do you say, like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, here I am, Lord, send me? Or do you say, Lord, I, I heard you, but could you send someone else? Could you send those professional workers into your harvest field? Because I know a lot of them are paid staff in your churches. Well, God does use those people, but he uses all of us. And so Abraham's faith is going to be stretched and here he is. God is calling him. And Abraham is about to act out something incredible. And God says in Genesis 22 two, Take now your son, your only son whom you love. Note these words are terms of endearment. Why does God put it this way? Because Ishmael is gone. And in God's sight, this is the legitimate son because he is the son of promise. He says, Take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and uh, this is probably 14 to 16 years uh, after. 
And he says, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. What I mean to say there is that Isaac is older now. He's not three anymore. He's probably a late teenager at this point. And he is to take this son, his only son, whom he loves, and he's to go to the land of Moriah. And what does God tell him? And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Can you imagine getting that message? Can you imagine the confusion that you would feel in your soul? Take your son, your only son whom you love, the one that I promised, the one that was a miracle child, the one that brought laughter to you and the camp and everybody else, the one who was a constant source of joy, the son of promise, through whom your seed will be called and named and kill him. What? Could you repeat that? But do you know that in this text, not once do you ever hear Abraham say, why? Not once do you hear him question. Now, there's a three-day journey that's going to take place, and I have all kinds of conjecture about what Abraham might have been muttering and praying and thinking. I wonder about how his night's sleep was that night because he woke up early the next morning, but we have no record of any whining, no record of any questioning, no record of any why, why me, how could you do this to me? None of that. Just obedience. Go to the land of Moriah and offer your son as a burnt offering. I'm going to show you that land. One writer says, to an ancient Middle Easterner, a burnt offering suggested a process. First, cutting the offering's throat, then dismemberment, then a sacrifice by fire in which the body parts were completely consumed on the altar. A burnt offering, folks, left a heap of ashes. That's it. No more Isaac. No more laughter. He's done. Now, if you're Abraham and you live in this time and you hear God say that and you imagine the finality of that moment that he's a pile of ashes, what would you do with that? Would your faith be being stretched? Oh, no doubt. This is, this is the hardest thing that anybody I can think of in the Bible's asked to do outside of what Jesus did for us. I'm gonna tell you of the mountain and I want you to offer him. This is the horror Abraham imagined with his own son as the sacrifice. I want you to kill laughter. I'm sure at this point, all laughter in Abraham fled away. Sometimes in life, it seems like things can turn on a dime and we can be having a pretty good day and we get some news or we get a bad break or things don't go our way. Man, it can happen fast. And Abraham, you know, he was whistling while he worked. He was enjoying this kid he was counting his blessings and then the bomb dropped from heaven. You know, sometimes the unexpected, right, from God is where this news comes from. And now Abraham had to learn to trust God again. Abraham's been on a journey of faith and he's been learning what it means to trust God. And his biggest test really comes at the end of his story. And I believe that this is how God does things in our life. Sometimes our biggest tests come after times of preparation. And then God puts us to the test and he wants to stretch us. Paul said, I've learned the secret of contentment. 
We often have to learn it through difficult times and hard lessons. I want you to notice in verse 2, he says to take your son and go to the land of Moriah, the land of Moriah. Everybody, if you are a note taker, write down 2 Chronicles 3.1. 2 Chronicles 3.1. I'm going to read it for you. And it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, 2 Chronicles 3.1, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. The word holy in the Hebrew picture language means that which comes out of the threshing floor. David built the temple on Mount Moriah, it was originally a threshing floor that he purchased from a Jebusite. And that site was on Mount Moriah. So the place that God tells Abraham to go is a three-day journey, probably on foot here. And that three-day journey goes to Mount Moriah, and Mount Moriah is Jerusalem. So what you need to know is that what the Bible is telling us is that this scene, which is 2,000 years before Christ, is going to occur on the site where the temple in Jerusalem would stand. And remember, that temple did not stand yet. This was yet future. It would come, it would be on David's heart. David would have it on his heart. Solomon would build the temple, and the site on which he built it would be the site where Abraham, thousands of years before, acted out this scene where he raised the knife. This was indeed holy ground. Think about it this way. Think about how many sacrifices occurred on this site throughout history. This was the temple. So in the temple courts, if you will, how many sacrifices of lambs and bulls and goats took place there? Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. This ground had been set apart. And when God directed Abraham towards the land of Moriah, specifically to Mount Moriah, there was a specific purpose in mind. And the purpose was that God would uh, fulfill his uh, picture here of the ultimate sacrifice there on Mount Moriah. Uh, I was looking up this location and one uh, source says, Mount Moriah is the name of the elongated north-south stretch of land lying between the Kidron Valley and the Haggai Valley, between Mount Zion to the west and the Mount of Olives to the east. There is archaeological evidence that Jesus was crucified on Mount Moriah. Calvary, or Golgotha, as many of us know it, would be near the top or summit of the mountain. In other words, Mount Moriah encompasses the area of the temple mount to the area of Golgotha, or Gordon's Calvary. If you've ever seen pictures of Gordon's Calvary, or if you've ever got a chance to go to Jerusalem One of the interesting things about this particular site, and it's there today, is that when you look at the hillside where they believe that Jesus died, and either on the hill or the road beneath, what you see is something that looks like a skull. It actually looks like a skeleton's head. And you can just see kind of the face of it there. And it's an interesting picture because Golgotha actually means the place of the skull, And if Jesus died in front of Golgotha, it's as if death was mocking him or laughing at him as he died there. And so interestingly enough, if that sight looked that way back in Abraham's day, when he lifted up his eyes as he headed to the land of Moriah, what he would have seen is some interesting uh, topography, if you will. 
he would have seen this particular sight. So Abraham, verse 3, rose, what's your Bible say? Early in the morning. Wouldn't you have slept in? I mean, I don't know if I would have been bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to carry out God's will on this day. I think I would have moved a little slower, saddled the donkey at a little less of a pace. But Abraham wakes up early in the morning. I'm not sure he got much sleep. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him, Isaac and Isaac, his son. He split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Abraham's obedience was immediate. How about you and me? There's a lot of people that won't even wake up for church on a Sunday morning, let alone go and do something like this and wake up early to accomplish God's will. What do you think Abraham was thinking as he woke up and journeyed on? Maybe something like this. How can God keep his promise if I sacrifice Isaac? God can't lie, so how will he remain true to his word, to his very nature, if I do this? Yet with all the questions and conjectures that we could have, Abraham obeyed, and on the third day, verse 4, Abraham raised up his eyes, and he saw the place from a distance. In John eleven forty one, 41, when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, the Bible says he raised up his eyes to pray. Many times when we think about prayer, in our, in our culture, we think of lowering your head in prayer, and that's, that can be appropriate, and we do see that in the Bible, getting on your knees, getting on your face, lowering your head, closing your eyes, perhaps, to help you focus. But in many cases, Jewish people actually raised up their eyes. Do you ever notice that sometimes when a prayer is happening, if you happen to lift up your head and you see somebody else with their eyes open, you begin to judge them? Can I get a witness? Wait, why aren't they? That's not the proper posture of prayer. <laughs> then why are you looking at them with your eyes open? Boy, are we quick to judge sometimes. You know, sometimes we judge the way people worship. We think, well, that person can't be worshiping unless they've got their hands up in the air. That's not true. Some people don't sing because they, they want to spare your ears. Isn't that a blessing? <laughs> Some people are reflecting on the words. Don't be quick to judge people just because they're not doing it the way you do. And Abraham raising up his eyes, it may imply that he was praying. I don't know for sure, but the Bible says here he raised up his eyes and he saw the place from a distance. He looked and he saw the place. Did he see that site of Golgotha specifically? Did he see the place of the skull? I don't know for sure, but this is the location where he's led. And Abraham said to his young men, verse 5, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship and return to you. So Abraham makes a statement of faith here. He's confident that they will return. Both of them. We will go worship and we will return to you. How could Abraham think that? How could he conclude if he was going to be true to God's uh, command to him that anybody would come back except one? But he says, we're going to go. And I want you to notice, he says, we're going to go and worship and we're going to return. Most scholars believe that Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. Here's one clue. It's found in Hebrews 11. Let's turn over there. Hebrews 11. We're going to look at the hall of faith here. Abraham is a prominent character in the great hall of faith. It's Hebrews 11. Let's take a look. Hebrews 11. We're going to pick it up at verse 17. 
Here's what it says. Hebrews eleven seventeen. It says, by faith, Hebrews eleven seventeen. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Reminds us of John three sixteen. Hebrews eleven eighteen says, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants or your seed shall be called. He, this is verse 19, that's Abraham, considered, this is an accounting term, King James says, accounting that God is able to raise men even from the dead from which he also received him, Isaac, back as a type. The word type there is parabole in the Greek. It's a figure. It becomes this, that when Abraham said these words to the servant, servants of his household, he was saying, if I kill him, God will raise him. Abraham believed in the resurrection. And get this. He even believed in a resurrection that it could occur if his son ended up as a pile of ashes. That's faith. And to my knowledge, in the Bible so far, there's been no resurrections. But Paul said in Acts 26, 8, why do any of you believe it incredible that God raises the dead? Do you believe Genesis 1-1? Do you believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and he said, let there be light and there was light? Do you believe that? And some people say, well, I'm not sure. I mean, can God really raise us from the dead if, we, if people were cremated or eaten by a shark? Oh, yeah. He spoke the universe into existence. He can raise your DNA or whatever he's going to do and raise you to life. No problem for God. Abraham's a man of faith. He's never seen it. He's never read a lot of the passages that you and I have read. But he believes that God's fulfillment of his promise will come through the seed of Isaac. And the link to Christ is through Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, on to the Christ through the tribe of Judah. This has to happen. So since it's impossible for God to lie, Abraham decided, well, if I do kill him, God will raise him. That, brothers and sisters, is faith. I don't know how you categorize your faith. I don't know how you judge your own faith. Go to John uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a few pages back, John chapter 8. So Jesus is in a heated debate with the Jewish leadership, as he often was. And uh, they've been going back and forth. And this is John 8. Let's pick it up at verse 56. John 8, 56. Jesus says, your father, speaking to the Jewish religious leadership, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it. And what's the Bible say? John 8, 56. And he was what? He was glad. When do you think Abraham saw Christ's day? Many Bible commentators, many solid Bible commentators believe that when Abraham saw Christ's day was in Genesis 22. He saw the crucifixion 
and the resurrection. He saw it prophetically. He saw it in his mind. Maybe as he reasoned those three days, maybe as God spoke to him. I don't know exactly how it worked, but Jesus confirms that Abraham saw his day. And remember, Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus was even born in Bethlehem. So you could imagine why the Jewish religious leadership responds. The Jews therefore said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Give us a break. And Jesus says these incredible words. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Woo, baby. You know what this means? Jesus is saying, before Abraham sprang into existence. You want to talk about 2,000 years ago? I'll give you even one more. Before Abraham was born, I am. If you want to know what the Jews concluded about that statement, look at the next verse. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They were going to try to stone him for blasphemy. His appeal is that Abraham saw his day. How did Abraham see it? Prophetically, back to Genesis 22. He saw it on Mount Moriah. He saw it playing out. In fact, many scholars believe that Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. And all of a sudden, we see the picture. Now, in Genesis 22, 6, Abraham took the wood. So remember, now he's arrived at the spot. They got to climb up the hill too much for the donkey, so they're going to leave the, the donkeys there. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, verse 6. He laid it on Isaac, his son. Interesting picture here. He took the wood. He laid it on Isaac, his son, verse 6. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. And note this in your Bible. And the two of them walked on together. Many scholars have pointed out that when the two of them walk on to, together, all of a sudden, this particular text is kind of transforming on a sub-level. And what you're seeing is God the Father and God the Son in agreement. Abraham becomes a type of God the Father. Jesus is pictured in Isaac. And you have a picture of the gospel. And as the wood is placed on Isaac, and if Isaac is a late teenager, it's understandable why he's carrying the wood. Abraham's an old dude, man. You gotta delegate when you get older, <laughs> amen? <laughs> Can I get a witness? I even asked my sons to get the remote control <laughs> or to close the back door if it's been left a little bit open. I'll call them into the room. Hey, yeah, dad, close that door. <laughs> like, but you're five feet from it. I know, but I'm, I'm in a reclined position. That's difficult for me to get up. So Isaac carries the wood, but as he carries the wood, what do you start thinking of? Do you know that in John 19, verse 17, it says that Jesus, what did he do? He bore his own cross. He carried at least the crossbar to Golgotha. He carried his own cross. And he was falling under the weight of it so much that they had to get someone to help, Simon the Cyrene, because he had been beaten so badly. He was carrying the wood of the cross. And Isaac, a type of Jesus, is carrying the wood to go up to Mount Moriah where Jesus would die 2,000 years later. A steep climb. And the two of them walked on together. You know, when we read our Bibles, we don't often think of what the father was going through when the son was being offered. But we're starting to get a glimpse in Genesis 22. And this is the beauty and the power of Scripture. 
Significantly, says one writer, the Genesis Rabbah, a pre-Christian Jewish midrash, a commentary, commented that Isaac, uh, with the wood on his back, was like a condemned man, get this, carrying his own cross, close quote. Jewish commentators saw this scene with the wood and the knife and the fire and the two going up together, even in pre-Christian days. But Abraham also believes in a resurrection. And so here they walk on together. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, the Messiah, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. The son must die, but the son must live. As Abraham journeys three days, he's got that going through his head. The son must die. God says, offer him, but he must live because the line has to come through him. He is the promised son. The seed must come through him. What a dilemma. It doesn't make sense to me, God. He must die, but he must live. And so he had to walk by faith. There are many things in this life that don't make sense to me. Abraham is the ultimate picture of a man who must be going through a civil war in his brain. And yet somehow he settled it. Somehow he believed that there was a prophetic picture that God was having him act out. And we find evidence of that by Hebrews 11. And so Isaac, well, he speaks up. I don't know how much silence there was. I don't know the pace of the walk, but Isaac decided to speak. And he said to Abraham, his father, and he said, my father... And he said, here I am. This is a beautiful exchange. Here I am, my son. And he said, behold, hey, dad, I see the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This tells us that offerings were taking place prior to the temple, prior to the official law, if you will. And Isaac knows there needs to be a lamb here. You remember when... Mary and Joseph go into the temple and they're going to offer the sacrifice for her cleansing according to Leviticus. So they go into the temple and Simeon's been there and he's been staying in the temple area and he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when he sees them come in with the, the baby, he's so excited and he wants to hold the child and the Holy Spirit has made a promise. This is found in Luke 2, 25 through 35, that he will not die until he has seen the Lord's Christ. And they go in there. And what they offer is the, sac the, the sacrifice is supposed to be a lamb according to Leviticus 12, 6 through 8, but there's a provision. If you cannot afford a lamb, you give two turtle doves or two young pigeons, and that's what Mary and Joseph offer. But what is interesting about that scene is that she already had her lamb. He's the lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. So this means the Magi had not arrived yet because if the Magi had arrived before that scene in the temple, they would have had the money to buy a lamb. But they don't have the money. And Simeon takes the child into his arms and he begins to praise God and there is the Lamb of God. Much like John the Baptist when he sees him says, Behold, look, there's what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you understand what this means? Jesus Christ 
is the ultimate offering for our sin. And God is dramatically playing this out in the book of Genesis. I mean, how many of us sometimes, we, we look at our Bibles and go, I don't, I don't know if I want to read the Old Testament. Oh man, you're missing something if you don't read it. So Isaac spoke up. I think any of us would. I'd have a few questions. Okay, Dad, <laughs> wood, fire, knife, lamb. Can you help me out here? So this tells us that Abraham had kept things to himself. And Abraham said, God, that's Elohim, verse 8, will provide, that's Yahweh, for himself the lamb. Literally, you could translate this, God will provide himself the lamb for the, for the burnt offering, my son. So once again, as we saw earlier, the two of them walked on together. Some assurance given to the son God will provide. Some of you need to mark that tonight. God will provide. He will provide what is needed here. Abraham's great words of faith. This is from Abraham. This is not the words of heaven right now. This is Abraham. Abraham says God will provide. And what's Abraham been asked to do? You and I have been able to see that this is a test. We read Genesis 22.1. Abraham didn't have that information. We know it's a test. We know how the story is going to end. But Abraham doesn't. And he says, my son, you want to hear some great words of faith? The Lord will provide. I've said that sometimes in my life. And then I've taken a gulp sometimes. You see, I want to live by faith. I, I'm like that, that uh, dad oftentimes who says, Lord, I believe, but are you with me? Help my unbelief. God will provide. This tells us something of what it means to see the Father's perspective in this. In Abraham's case, God, as F.W. Grant has well said, spared that Father's heart a pang which he would not spare his own. You see, this was Abraham's test, but this was God's reality. We know what happens. We know God stops this, but he did not spare his son. And he who did not spare his son for us, how will he not along with him freely give us how many? All things. Romans chapter 8. I think that's verse 32. You see, we, we live our lives so much of the time in doubt. So much of the time we let doubt weigh us down. And Abraham walked on. And look, the 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 commission that he had was a tough one. I'm sure none of us could have anything that compares to this. Although sometimes life does feel this way. And then they came to the place, verse 9, of which God had told him. And Abraham, he built an altar. An altar is a place of worship. And there he arranged the wood and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I want you to note Isaac's voluntary submission to his aged father. I'm sure at this point, Isaac could outrun him. I mean, this dude's 100 plus. You're a late teenager. I hope you can beat your dad in a race. Arm wrestling might be different. <laughs> I'm sure Isaac could outrun him. I'm sure he could have wrestled him. I mean, your life's on the line. Are you going to submit? You might ask your dad, did you take the right medication this morning? Any funny-looking vitamins? <laughs> Are you sure you've heard from God? 
I'd be asking a ton of questions, but I hear no question from Isaac. All I see is voluntary submission, which is a picture of who? Jesus. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, though, we do know that he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Look, you're going to have some Gethsemane moments in your life. Everybody know that? God's going to stretch you and take you to places where you're going to have to voice prayers like that. And it's not always going to make sense. And maybe that was something that Isaac prayed. Dad, this does not make sense to me. But I'm going to submit. The father submitted. The son submitted. Wow. Beautiful. Even Christ did not please himself, Romans 15, 2. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach thee fell upon me. You all know these verses. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus despised the shame of the cross. He did not want it, but he voluntarily submitted for the joy that was set before him. And I know that many Bible teachers have said the joy that was set before Jesus was knowing that you would be in heaven. He looked forward in time and saw all the faces that would be there by his sacrifice. I agree. But I'll tell you something else, and this may be more biblical. I think the joy set before him was to do the will of his father. I think the joy set before him, he said, I always do those things, what? That please my father. I think he wanted to please his father. I think he also knew what would occur from the sacrifice. And the Bible goes on, Hebrews 12, 3, consider Jesus who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. For you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And Jesus said, your will be done. And Isaac said, okay, Father. And Abraham stretched out his hand. Can you imagine the emotions? Can you imagine waiting all your life for this son to be realized? And you've got a knife over him. He, Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. What would that take? To be at that point of obedience is incredible. I want to take you to one other New Testament passage. It's found in the book of James. Everybody turn, if you would, to the book of James. James chapter 2. When we were memorizing the books of the Bible and some of the classes I've taught over the years, one of the ways I get people to remember the book of James was by doing a little James Brown. Jump back. Want to kiss the sky. Say, hi. I do that and freak out people in Sunday school, but <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with that guy. Anyway, many things, but James 2, 18 says, James is shoe leather stuff. Rubber meets the road. You say you're a Christian. James is from the show me state. James 2, 18, he says, someone will may say, someone may well say, you have faith, James 2, 18, I have works. Show me your faith, keyword, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, James 2.19, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? 
You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was what? Perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And all God's people said, go. Does this ruin justification by faith? Does James disagree with Paul? No. James is talking about how people can see your faith. He's talking about people who have a said faith, people who claim they're Christians, but they have no fruit in their lives. James says, if you want to tell me you're a Christian, then show me. Do you agree? Do you agree that there's going to be fruit in a Christian's life? But do you know that the verse that's quoted here, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, which is James 2.23, is actually from Genesis 15.6 that happened at least 30 years before the Genesis 22 offering of Isaac. Here's the point. Abraham was justified by faith long before he was called to do this. But his act of doing this showed that his faith was what? Genuine. We have to remember we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not by works so that no one, what? Can boast. However, your obedience to God's call in your life becomes one of the primary evidences for people to see that you're a Christian. And that's what James is talking about. He's talking about on a horizontal level. Heaven already knows whether or not you're a Christian. The question is, do people know? And if you read, go back and read James 2, James talks about how, you know, one of the ways that we live out our faith is by trying to help people and doing practical things. Back to Genesis 22 and we're done. We're only going to go up to verse 18. So Abraham's got the knife. He's ready to plunge it into his son, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord, who's that? We believe that's Jesus in the Old Testament, called from heaven. And he said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, <laughs> good time to respond. Knife, you know, dad, pick up that call before you do anything further. Please, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I want you to note something, Bible students. Abraham got to see right in front of his eyes how he would be saved. He got to see Christ's day. But here's something else. If the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ, and I believe there's rock-solid evidence that the angel of the Lord is Jesus, guess what? Jesus knew that 2,000 years later that knife would come down on him. Wow, that's like almost a crazy mystery kind of thing, isn't it? But he knew he would come into the world. He knew that he would give this sacrifice. And so he stops. I want you to know, notice that when the angel of the Lord speaks, he's identified in verse 11, and he says, now I know that you fear who? God. The angel of the Lord is God. Just compare verses 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord is the one calling, but he says, now I know you fear who? God, because you've not withheld your only son from who? From me. The angel of the Lord is God. And God, again, the father would not stay his hand on his son. And Abraham raised his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him, he didn't see this, but behind him, a ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And what kind of deep breath do you think, what kind of whoo do you think Isaac let out after this? What did he say? What did he say, Dad? He said, <laughs> he said, I don't have to kill you. Oh, praise God. I don't know what kind of worship was going on on that mountaintop, but I would think it was a holy hallelujah kind of meeting. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. And Abraham turned around and a provision was there. I heard one teacher say that Abraham was going up this side of the mountain and the provision was coming up this side of the mountain. And as Abraham was obeying God and walking by faith, he couldn't see the provision. But when he turned around, the provision was behind him. And sometimes, you know, we're looking in front of us and we're going, I don't know where the provision is. I don't know how we're going to get out of this one. But there was a ram caught in the thicket. And I'm sure that was the most joyous sacrifice that Abraham had ever given. He looked and there was the offering. And Abraham called the name of the, that place, the Lord will provide, verse 14, as it is said to this day, this is what they named the place, in the mount of the Lord, would you mark in your Bibles, this sounds like future tense, doesn't it? It what? It will be provided. This is a whole scene of prophecy. Jesus was coming on this same spot 2,000 years later to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And this is the beautiful picture here of Yahweh Yahweh, or as many of us know it, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Do you believe that? Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we struggle. Maybe we need a provision for our health. Maybe it's a spiritual provision. Maybe it's a financial provision. Well, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Uh, we were going through this building, this building, and we had a building committee. And uh, we, the, the margins were extremely tight. And we had redirected things. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we, were, we had bought land and um, that didn't work out. It was going to cost like $3 million just to do what the city wanted us to do. And we're like, ah, that's over budget. So the Lord provided this place for us. And you guys know, if you go back to the old building and look at our sanctuary, our chapel back there, you, you're like, oh my goodness, how do we all fit in here? In fact, I had people tell me they would go in there and they were a bit claustrophobic and they couldn't stay at our church because it was, we were just, do you know how tight we were in there? We were breaking all kinds of fire codes, man. But it proved that you guys loved each other because you, man, you were packed in there. So anyway, we, we talked to a, a construction guy and we had a budget and this, this guy came recommended and he was a believer and we, we knew that he was going to do his best to try to help us out. And his bid was $700,000 over our budget. I just want you to think about that for a second. $700,000. We had kind of a maximum budget and the first bid that we thought would be the guy was so far out of our budget I didn't know what to do. I looked at the people in the meeting. I was trying to encourage faith, but I was trying to encourage myself because I was like, Lord, that's a lot of money. <laughs> Did you hear that number, Lord? Did you hear that? <laughs> so I was trying to be strong and I encouraged faith and I got in my car and I think it was one of the next nights and Chuck Swindoll was talking about faith and he was preaching from Genesis 22. He said, what, what are you willing to believe God for? Are you willing to take a risk 
even if you fail, are you willing to live by faith? And I'm like, I think this is for me. You ever had one of those moments in your car, right? You're going through something. Oh, Lord, I need to hear a word. Here it is. Turned it up. Are you willing to risk even if you fail? Yeah, yeah. Went Went back to the elder board, right? And then I got a little taste of failure, and I didn't like the way it tasted. You see, it wasn't in my faith equation that we could really fail. I just wanted to take a step of faith and have God meet us there and it all work out the way I had planned it. So that's kind of how I prayed. And then when the story unfolded, it didn't work the way I thought it was going to work. And I was like, oh, oh, did we make a mistake here? I envisioned myself coming before all of you and apologizing, which did not do my heart well. I want to be a good steward. I want to manage what God entrusts to us as elders. The other elders and pastors have the same heart. And it did not look good. And then all, all of left field, God made a way. And we came into our budget. We got another guy who was a Christian, and he did it. And he, he finished this whole place, and we were within our budget. And, it, and I just was parked right here in the mount of the Lord. It will be provided. Even when it looks so huge, God is faithful. How sweet it is when he provides. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and God did something shocking, surprising. This is recorded in Hebrews 6, 13 through 18. We won't go there tonight, but he said, here's what God said in response to what Abraham did. He said, by myself, I have sworn. You see, God can't swear by anybody higher, so he's got to swear by himself. You know, I swear to tell the, the whole, nothing but the truth, the whole truth, so help me. Well, when, yeah, God just says, so help me, me right? (laughs) There's nobody higher to swear to, but God swore by an oath and he declared, notice, who's doing this? The angel of the Lord called, 15, a second time from heaven and said, boy, sure sounds like he's God, doesn't it? By myself, I have sworn, declares who? The Lord. Because you have done this thing, you have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. God was so pleased with Abraham's obedience. Man, he makes an oath, and he begins to just, you know, uh, confirm these promises. Myers says, there's nothing indeed which God will not do for a man who dares to step out on what seems to be a mist, though, as he puts his foot out, Beneath him is the rock. And verse 18, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And do you know, brothers and sisters, that you're in this story because if Abraham, as Abraham acts out the gospel, this is your salvation. This is where your sins were paid. In Jesus, the promise comes to light. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. And God put this in the Bible to show us. He loves us. He planned to sacrifice his son, if you will, from all eternity because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Would you bow with me? That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Lord God, 
Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this beautiful prophetic picture. Let us trust you, whatever we're going through tonight. Refresh, renew faith in this room. As we come to your communion table, let us remember your body pierced for us, your blood shed for us. You voluntarily took the fall. No one took your life from you. You laid it down of your own accord. You have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. And thank you that you did. You rose from the dead. That's pictured on this mountain. Isaac did come back. He was a type of the resurrection. It looked like he was dead, but he was alive again. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the hope that we have beyond even this life. And I pray tonight that as we come to your table, you'll just bless the believers in this room. And if you're not a believer, man, get right right now. Then you can come to the Lord's table with a clean conscience and a forgiven spirit, a forgiven heart, a forgiven life. If you want to know Christ, just say, Lord, I, I want to trust you. Forgive me of my sin. Give me a new start. Give me a new heart. I repent and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Do business with him right now. If you're a Christian, you need to lay down some things. You need to confess some things before you come to this table. Do that right now. But know that he invites you to find refreshment and hope and life in him. So we just want to bless your name, Father, and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.